This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, July 26, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The most subversive part of Bitcoin may well be the underlying blockchain technology. That's the argument from Don and Alex Tapscott, authors of the new book, Blockchain Revolution. We spoke last month. A few years ago, everybody seemed really excited about Bitcoin, which was a not just a virtual currency, but a ledger, and it had all these uh, neat features built into it. Uh, but blockchain seems to be the thing that uh, a lot of financial firms are really excited about now and, and other groups of people who want to use sort of trustless uh, business uh, innovation. So describe for the general public, what is blockchain technology? Well, I'll get started. This is Alex Tapscott. Uh, we've been researching this subject for the better part of two years and have basically become convinced that blockchain represents nothing less than the second generation of the internet. And as a result, we think it's going to have a really powerful impact um, on industries like financial services, um, but also on the economy as a whole, potentially on government uh, and uh, society. So when you use the internet today to send or move or share information, you're not actually sending an original. You're sending a copy. And generally speaking, that's okay. In fact, it's a good thing in certain situations. It means we can share um, information with people. And uh, in many respects, we have a printing press for information. When it comes to things of value like money or stocks or bonds or other financial assets, sending a copy is a really bad idea. If I give you $100 for something, it's really important that you know that you have it and I don't. Because if I can send the same $100 to Don here to my right or to anybody else, that $100 becomes worthless. So as a result, we need to rely on these trusted intermediaries to um, verify the identity of parties, to create trust, and also to do all the processing and clearing and record keeping that's required in commerce online. And uh, these intermediaries do an okay job, with, but with some limitations. They're centralized, um, and anything centralized is vulnerable to attack or failure. Um, they capture our data, which uh, potentially could undermine our privacy and our rights. Um, they tax the system. In the case of sending money overseas, it costs 10% or more. They exclude billions of people from the global economy who don't have access to banking, who don't have access to identity. Um, <clears throat> they slow things down. Uh, it turns out that the back-end processes for a lot of financial um, parts of the financial services industry are quite out of date, uh, running on old technology. So in some, we'd, we'd argue that um, they capture an asymmetric amount of the value um, undermining the individual's ability to, to you know, monetize it and get their fair share. So um, with blockchain, we have a vast new global platform that's based on this distributed ledger, this uh, database of everything that's occurred that's uh, running on mil millions of computers around the world and open to anyone. We're not just information, but anything of value, um, money, financial assets, but also things like titles and deeds, uh, identity, companies, um, intellectual property, even things like votes, can be managed, moved, and stored securely and privately. And where trust is not established by a third party like a government or a bank, but rather through uh, mass collaboration and clever code. And as a result, we think that's going to have a really big impact on a lot of things. Uh, indeed. And most people think about Bitcoin initially as an asset. You know, it goes up or down in value. It's something broader. It's a cryptocurrency, which is not created or controlled by nation states. And that gets more interesting. But the most important thing is that 
the underlying technology, the blockchain, is, we think, the biggest innovation in computer science in a generation. And it holds the potential to create a very different kind of, not just bank or financial services institution, but a very different kind of corporation, a very different kind of government, and a very different kind of society. In terms of somebody who wants to access the broad market of equities, what are the costs that they are uh, have to absorb right now that they will not have to absorb with a broad distribution of blockchain technology? Well, it's an interesting ex example because when it comes to equity trading today, the, the, the hot new thing that people talk about is high-frequency traders, where competitive, competitive advantage is measured in uh, nanoseconds. Um, where you actually get a a technical advantage over your competitors That's by right. being physically closer to the trading floor because your bits don't have to travel as far of a physical distance. Exactly. And that can actually make a difference. My favorite, my favorite example is um, the group of investors who built a fiber optic cable from Chicago to New York, from the Chicago Mercantile Exchange to uh, the New York Stock Exchange, and carved through granite mountains to, to cut you know, a couple kilometers off the distance. But the back end of the equity market is similar for a lot of people. So, you know, you may confer competitive advantage in a few nanoseconds, but the, it still takes T plus three, so it takes two to three days to settle that trade. It's the same for the, you know, mom and pop investor living in Idaho on the farm, uh, which is kind of bizarre. Uh, and that's actually true, broadly speaking, of a lot of parts of the financial services industry where the front end um, may seem seamless. You know, you tap your card at Starbucks and you think the payment stream is going right to the merchant. It's not. It's going through this huge network of intermediaries. And that puts cost on the system. So in the case of equity trading, um, you've got clearing and settling uh, and back office costs that are, um, you know, uh, the burden of the system usually falls on the individual. And that's where you get, you know, the commission structure on trading and, and securities. So... I think more so than cost, you've also got the risk issue, which is less of an issue with public equities, but broadly speaking, an issue with lots of financial securities where you might have counterparty risk or settlement risk of things just bouncing. Trades just don't actually go through. So if we can reduce cost and risk and, and increase speed and efficiency, financial markets, then individual investors um, will benefit directly from that. Compare to me the benefits for a small investor or a small business person uh, and a large investor. It, it, it seems intuitive to me that if, if this kind of uh, technology is available broadly, that the benefits would accrue to people who have less to invest. That is, that is the cost of getting into the game yeah. is not quite as high relatively for somebody with, with smaller amounts of money to invest. Is that true? Well, I'll, I'll start um, with investors in the sense of entrepreneurs. So <clears throat> the way that we've created wealth throughout the last century is largely through vertically integrated corporations that do everything from soup to nuts. And what we believe blockchain technology will do is radically drop transaction and collaboration costs in the economy. And that's going to enable small companies to have the capabilities of big companies without the main liabilities, deadening bureaucracy, legacy systems, the culture, and and people, and so on. And it's possible to imagine a corporation that has a million investors um, as a startup, 
where it's uh, essentially a crowdfunding model, and people are not buying uh, an early copy of a Pebble watch or something like that. They're buying equity in the company. And with blockchains, this technology could enable radical new models of the firm. Now, in the book, for example, we hypothesized about something we called the distributed autonomous enterprise. And this is a corporation where a large, numbers, uh, a large number of investors um, created or, or uh, provided the in initial capital, but the company could really run pretty much without people. It could be software running on a blockchain. And uh, this is all possible because of things like smart contracts, just, just what it sounds like, contracts that manage digital assets, self-execute and have a bank account, but also through intelligent agents working on a blockchain. So Alex and I had a good chat about this. Do we really want to publish something that's so kind of wacky and far out of people as company? Totally coincidentally, the day the book came out, um, on uh, um, the second week in May, an organization called the Distributed Autonomous Organization was announced. And it had no people, no management, no CEO. It had a bunch of software, and its first job was to go raise some money. And it went out and raised $150 million. And uh, so it was like this crazy, wacky idea that turned into reality way faster than we thought it might. So you were talking about it in theory, and while you were talking about it, it happened in practice? <laughs> yeah. We swear yeah. We, we, didn't, we didn't plan it that way, but... Um, it was kind of good for book sales, because now everybody's buzzing about this distributed autonomous organization. Yeah. We're, we're the ones who invented the idea, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, to find it in so, the book. Yeah. So let's get, let's get real... Uh, let's get down to the nuts and bolts here um, for this kind of company that operates, in, in essence, without people. What does that mean, that it operates without people? You're talking... I'm, I'm thinking of companies that have... HR departments and have uh, debate over what their uh, corporate strategy is going to be and things like that. So, in, in, ter in that, in terms of that kind of stuff, what are we talking about? Well, uh, to be clear, we're not arguing <laughs> that um, the firm of the future won't have people involved in it. But it turns out that a lot of the functions of what companies do can be automated using this technology. And that can create a lot of um, really positive benefits. An example of which is that today we have this issue with the principal agent problem, where you've got managers who um, are hired by stakeholders to uh, run a business. And oftentimes their interests don't align with shareholders' rights. And that creates all sorts of problems. And um, it's sort of an example of the moral hazard issue where, you know, someone takes undue risk because if, they, if they're right, then they'll get paid off big time. And if they're wrong, someone else will pick up the tab, essentially. And this has been the, an issue for behavioral economists and regulators and shareholder rights activists for a long time. How do we untangle these issues? So could we um, organize a business where we could disintermediate human frailty, not human beings, but these issues that create problems inside businesses and still enable people to do what people do best, strategize, um, innovate, think, um, and uh, you know, be creative. So that's, that's the 
if someone can find the right balance between um, streamlining and automating these kinds of things inside a firm whilst still enabling people to do what they do best. I think that's the model for the firm of the future. So essentially cutting out a lot of the overhead uh, associated with any given business. And enterprise. we speak specifically as well to many of those different functions like HR and, and sales and, and, um, and other components of the firm as well in the book. Well, the, the really big one um, on our mind is a broader kind of social thing. And it has to do with prosperity, that uh, we have all this miraculous technology, but for the first time in modern history, the 51st percentile individual or family is not getting ahead. And social inequalities become this big public policy issue, and the only approach that anyone's come up with to solve it is to have bigger taxes, including on the rich, focused on the rich. And by doing that, we can redistribute wealth. Well, what we argue in the book is that there may be a completely different approach, that we can pre-distribute wealth in the sense of democratizing how wealth gets created through this technology. So, and there are a lot of ways to do that. Um, we can bring billions of people into the global economy who don't have a bank account because they don't have an identity or enough money through technology. Um, not through big financial institutions or governments. We can um, solve the problem of l land titles, ensuring that people have a real right to their land. Seventy percent of people who own land in the world uh, have a flaky title, and you may be living in Honduras and you got a little piece of land, and some dictator comes to power and says, uh, I know you got a piece of paper saying you own your land, but our government computers say that my friend owns your land. This is a huge problem. It, that really happened in Honduras. Um, so by putting land titles on a blockchain, no dictator can mess with them. We could create a sort of halcyon age of entrepreneurship uh, through this technology. We can ensure that people's economic rights are protected. Uh, just an example right now, and we talk about this a fair bit in the book, is how musicians get screwed. They create this value, but they don't get to keep much of it. And uh, it has always been such, at least since the record labels uh, gained a, uh, a hammer lock on, on the music industry. And then along came, along came the uh, technology companies like Apple and then the streaming companies like Spotify, and the musicians are left with crumbs. So uh, right now, today, um, the Grammy-winning uh, singer-songwriter Imogen Heap is creating a new platform for the music industry where musicians post their music on this blockchain platform along with some smart contracts that specify all the IP rights. And uh, if you listen to the song, maybe a few microcents go to her account. If you put the song in a movie, then that's different. The smart contract specifies all the rights. If you remix the song, there are there are different rights. Mm -hmm. And this can enable musicians to get fed first. And it's the, the, the severity of the situation uh, from a big social point of view is quite extreme. It's not just musicians, it's all kinds of people who create value. Um, the, uh, the head of the uh, Songwriters Association of Canada did some math on this. And he said, if I wrote a hit song 20 years ago and it sold a, a million singles, I'd make $45,000. If I write a hit song today and it gets a million downloads, 
I don't get $45,000. I get $36, which won't even get me to the airport. Might get you a nice pizza or something rather than annual living. So um, there are many injustices like this that can be fixed by people self-organizing using this technology rather than through big, powerful institutions. Talking about crowdfunding as a, uh, a method of using blockchain to, uh, as you say, democratize wealth and the, the creation of it, uh, there are a lot of regulators who are would be perfectly happy to say, oh, no, this is not this is not something that is allowed. And a lot of business people find themselves when they've uh, requested all their friends and family to chip in for a business, they find out that they're regu- they are subject to Securities and Exchange Commission uh, regulations regarding uh, public offerings. Yeah, it's co- kind of always been that way when you get a big new technology innovation. But but to then let me to the question then is to what extent does blockchain sort of challenge the uh, the regulatory models that currently exist and how regulators go about doing their jobs every day? It's going to fundamentally transform um, the role of regulators in ways that might be expected and others that are unexpected. Um, The rules that govern the financial services industry uh, are a bit of a hodgepodge, and some of them date back to, um, you know, the 19th century in many respects. In fact, money transmission laws in New York um, predate the telegraph, and so where the primary source of sending and receiving funds was horse and buggy. And so, so laws like that could never have envisioned um, ACH, you know, the automated clearinghouse, let alone the internet or something as, um, as um, advanced as blockchain technology. Um, where, where we see this technology intersecting with regulators, though, is that we believe that blockchain could be a powerful tool for different stakeholders in the industry to do their jobs better. Um, I think it's clear that uh, for financial services institutions and for the individual investor and the individual participant, um, things will improve uh, dramatically. But regulators, too, can benefit uh, because when transactions are done using blockchain, um, the record of them appears on this distributed ledger, which everyone can see. And so if a regulator has the ability to see in real time what is going on inside uh, the financial services industry, then they don't need to um, dig into individual companies' you know, annual reports or into their um, you know, specific financial records um, because what's occurred is f- there for all to see. So it's our hope that regulators will take an enlightened approach to this and see the benefit to them and actually rather than increasing the regulatory burden on firms, perhaps even pull some back because you've got greater transparency and responsiveness. Well, uh, wish in one hand, as they say. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, what you're describing then is essentially people uh, using this technology, maybe building their own models about what the real status of a particular company might be, getting a real-time assessment of the solvency and profitability and risks associated with uh, decisions that various firms make all yeah, the time. It's, it's sort of the idea that sunlight is a great disinfectant. And um, we've actually been talking about the idea of a citizen regu- regulator that... Um, through transparency, uh, for example, triple entry accounting, people can see what um, what's occurring. Mm-hmm. And we argue that when it comes to regulating digital currencies and blockchain technology and so on, that a light uh, 
approach and a cautious approach makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the early days of the internet, there was a proposal in Congress that everyone who created a website would have to have a CB license, CB radio license. <laughs> I think there were like 300 or yeah. 400 of them in the world at the time. Um, so, um, and, and regulators, uh, initially we were quite concerned because there was a, a lot of fear and uncertainty about this technology. But overall, I think that the, the smart ones are understanding that this could be good for the economy and that they shouldn't crush it in the egg. Mm -hmm. Well, let, let, based on regulation, you said that it might help regulators. That's not going to be any comfort to people listening to this podcast. But uh, well, well, help them in the sense of being able to be comfortable that things are working well in society without having a heavy hand and, and increasing the regulatory burden. Again, probably not of much comfort yeah. to a lot of listeners. So uh, <laughs> let me uh, ask a question related to that. You were talking about uh, the ability to do things privately. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a number of projects that are out there uh, making use of blockchain technology to essentially shield both sides of a transaction. And, and what do you think of that? We talk about transparent. Don talked about transparency, and it's the what we view as sort of the um, the great two-sided um, debate about this whole thing, which is that could you have a technology that increases transparency for institutions and increases accountability for governments, and corporations, while also enabling privacy for individuals. Um, and we think that that's possible with this technology. Now, I'm not sure what specifically you're, you're referring to, but there are, there are uh, implementations of blockchain that enable completely trustless, anonymous transactions. And I think there are lots of um, examples where that's uh, desirable. Maybe you don't want anyone to know a specific social cause that you are supporting. Maybe you're uh, living in a part of the world where the government is authoritarian and you want to be able to make payments and start a business without them cracking down on you. Maybe you want to read a newspaper without the threat of someone knocking on your door and, uh, and arresting you for, you know, breaking some arbitrary law. Um, so, yeah, of course, there are lots of examples. I can imagine a Saudi woman wants to start an online blog and not having to worry about being reprimanded by uh, some moral police force, right? So um, I think that privacy for the individual and transparency at the institutional level, uh, if, if achievable, is the most desirable outcome. The, whole, the opportunity here for, for privacy is quite profound. And um, we polemicize in the book against those who say privacy is dead, get over it. A privacy is the foundation of a free society, and we all need to protect our identity and, and in fact, to manage it in a responsible way. And it's one of the great ironies of the first era of the Internet, the Internet of Information, that we, all of us, create this data, arguably the big, biggest asset ever, a new asset class. Um, but somebody else owns it. And it's owned by uh, big companies. It's owned by big governments. And uh, they get all kinds of asymmetrical benefit for them as a result of that. So uh, for corporations, they can monetize that data. And we're denied that opportunity, but we're also denied the right to use that data to help us better run our lives. And what does it mean for a corporation to have perfect information? 
about each of us. And it's uh, no surprise, I'm sure, and uh, no revelation to the listeners of this particular podcast that uh, all around the world, the governments are creating a, a surveillance society. And uh, people who, uh, you know, assume that gover governments are benevolent are, are naive, to say the least. So the opportunity here is that we could get our identity back. You know, the virtual Alex may know more about Alex than he does in certain areas because he can't remember what he said a year ago or bought a year ago or his specific location at this instant a year ago. Um, what if Alex could get control of the virtual Alex? And that's the opportunity here, that we can each have an avatar, which is our own identity, that we can manage. And that identity travels around in the digital age with us, and it gives out that shred of information required mm -hmm. to do a transaction or to do whatever. And in many situations, you don't have to give out any information. I mean, if you sell me something, what you really care about is that you get paid. You don't even need to know who I am. Um, and you sure don't need to know what my frequent flyer number is and what my social insurance number is and what my driver's license uh, is and all the rest of the stuff that's become aggregated together into, the, into these uh, bundled identities that we have today. So this is, this is one of the biggest uh, opportunities because th this is the foundation of freedom. And um, it's been undermined seriously through the first generation of the Internet. We can get it back. Don and Alex Tapscott are authors of Blockchain Revolution. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.